Hello, everyone. It's been a long time. I recognize that. However, the good news is that I have not dropped off the face of the earth, and I haven't stopped reading. So, that means that the backlog of information on the things that I've learned over the last few months is rather daunting, but I would like to still document it. So with that said, without any explanations as to why I was gone, I'd like to just continue where we left off. And where we left off was when I was going through two different books. Uh, One of them was Why We Sleep, I'm still going through that book. Uh, The other one is A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. And I'm still going through that book, although I'm nearly done with that one. And that book specifically takes... I'm reading each chapter, I'd say probably around five to six times, just because I need to really absorb the information, really understand the information. With with physics principles, I find that my brain often, it's, it's not like it gets baffled. It's not like I feel like I'm, I'm too dumb to understand it by any means. Uh, I'll, I'll never say that about myself, but it is such a, it's just not something I've studied in the past, and there is a, a rebellious part of my brain that seems to read some of these things. I'm like, well, that that just that that doesn't work. That can't be true. And then I have to sit there and think about it, and think about it, and think about it. And even when I've thought about it, and I've really started to come around to the perspective that's being written, I often find myself, well, maybe not often, but still, a few times I find myself like I, I just don't see how that works out. But I digress. Well, I'd like to continue. Oh, actually, before I continue, uh, I read some other books that I didn't take any notes on because there were more stories uh, like Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. That was quite a good book. So if you've uh, been interested in a bunch of short stories by an incredibly curious individual, uh, Richard Feynman, Dick Feynman is a Nobel Prize winning physicist or was a Nobel Prize winning physicist who passed away, I believe, in the 1980s. And he essentially just tells a bunch of random stories, which are a thrill. They're, they're very fun to go through. And uh, I didn't really see them as all that appropriate for this podcast because I wasn't really learning anything. Uh, I was just more going along the journey with him. But maybe in the future I will reference a story or two from time to time from that book. Anyway, I wanted to continue on why we sleep. And this first piece of information comes from a study that looked at napping and how it impacts memory. So what they did was they compared two different groups. One group took a 90-minute nap after being presented with 100 unique memorizing items. So pictures, words, things like that. And the other group stayed awake for those 90 minutes, which shouldn't be all that difficult because most people, 
<laughs> maybe I shouldn't speak for most people. Uh, I don't take any naps, so I imagine a lot of other people don't have the time for naps. So it's kind of a comparison of people who don't take naps versus people who do take naps. And interestingly, they found that people in the napping group did substantially better on the recall. So you'd think that if you're awake, that you'd be able to remember the things that happened just 90 minutes ago. But supposedly, that is not the case. Apparently, uh, memory is worsened by being awake. Or maybe I should better state it, it should say napping is an improvement on memory. So then they took it a little further and they also investigated where these memories are going, which is a really cool concept. Uh, and the first hundred items that they memorized uh, were then banked in the cortex. So the hippocampus is well known for memory, but the hippocampus is actually really known for more short-term memory even though in psychology I think that the term short-term and long-term has kind of been eviscerated. It's more of working memory. That's the, the term that's now used. Uh, but regardless, it doesn't really matter. I mean, they're describing the same thing. So these hundred items were within, you know, a, a few minutes, a, you know, 90 minutes. So you're not talking about days or months later that you have to recall this stuff. So these individuals when they memorized these hundred items, it would enter their hippocampus, but when they would take a nap, the beautiful thing about sleep is that it allowed that transfer of information from the hippocampus to the much, much larger area of the brain known as the cortex. And that's what allowed these memories to be integrated and to be left so that they could uh, refill their hippocampus, kind of refresh, they'd refresh their hippocampus because they had kept all those hundred items in their cortex from now on, and now they could fill that, that hippocampus with new information. However, the individuals that didn't nap, of course, didn't have that process, so their hippocampus was still holding on to those hundred memories, and therefore it was much harder for them to integrate new memories. And I think that's a, that's a really cool thought process, and it was evidenced by specific bursts of electrical activity uh, in a pathway between the hippocampus and particular sections of the cortex that they were able to measure. So really, really cool there. Then they had uh, another situation where uh, they gave people a choice of being given, so they were given a memory challenge, and then they were given a choice to go to sleep, but they had to choose between REM sleep, REM sleep, or non-REM sleep. And the researchers would be, of course, making sure that they would stay, uh, they would be only within that range, within non-REM, you know, the different stages of deep sleep, or the REM sleep itself. And the people who chose non-REM sleep uh, did better when it came to recall of memory. So, and that goes back to one of the very first podcast episodes that I talked about, uh, where I talked about how non-REM sleep is the one that allows for this transfer of information, uh, this, this integration of information, this, uh, this remodeling, if you will, of our brain 
to allow this information to be integrated. And then the book discusses some artificial ways of enhancing memory. And they mentioned that in some preliminary studies, they found that low pulse electrodes being put on the front and back of the brain or the head uh, that can pulse at a similar rate of normal sleep synchrony. And synchrony, just to remind you, is a togetherness of the wave going across the brain. And as we know, that occurs only in non-REM sleep, which again feeds into this idea that I just mentioned. So if you can have low pulses of these electrodes on the, on the, on the skull to be in synchrony with the sleep, with the non-REM sleep, that artificially increases the communication between the hippocampus and the neocortex, the cortex region that I was talking about, the, the long-term uh, effects of memory. So that's really cool. That would be, I mean, if we could move that forward, that would be really brilliant because that would allow us to that would allow us to do a lot of things but more specifically i guess more advent it would be a greater advent allow for a greater advent <laughs> man am I, am I having difficulty here it would be a greater advantage for the preservation of memory in all individuals but certainly probably with aging as well So just going off that some more, you can also use perfectly timed brainwave sounds that mimic the synchronicity of non-REM sleep, and it'll induce deeper and more memory-effective sleep. So sounds or the use of electrodes. I believe, I didn't write this down, but I believe they also mentioned that if you <clears throat> try to do that with sounds, and you get it wrong, like you get the, the speed off, uh, that can actually screw up your sleep. So uh, you have to be, you have to really modulate that and make sure that that's absolutely accurate, which would be tough to do because you'd have to know the speed of your uh, non-REM sleep synchronicity. And then to improve memory, I thought this was really cool, to improve memory of items of information that you find especially informative, important, deep, whatever it might be. They have some special knowledge for you, like they, 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 they speak to you. You can recall those pieces of information right before you go to sleep and the brain will integrate those memories and that learning more prominently than the rest of the day's memories. That is really, really cool. So if you've always had difficulty uh, remembering something, you could make sure that you hone in on that specific, you know, few set of items right before you go to sleep and your brain will integrate those more strongly than, uh, than all the other memories that you've gone through for the day. So, I mean, that's, that's a fascinating idea. Uh, if, I mean, I, I can't really think of a scenario where I'd want to remember just 
one or two pieces of information throughout the day. But if that is the case, and of course you can always just set reminders in your phone, but as an exercise, that would be a really, really cool ability. Uh, on the flip side, if you're trying to forget a particular piece of information, <laughs> uh, you can consciously think that you need to forget this piece of information. And when you go to sleep during non-REM sleep, your brain will actively forget that one piece of information. And the same is true for remembering a particular piece of information like I described uh, earlier. So, so clearly there's a conscious aspect to this where you can decide certain things and sort of tell your brain, your cells in your brain, how to react. I mean, not specifically cell to cell, but as an overarching theme, you are the master and commander. So you get to, uh, to have that ruler-like mentality about your brain, which is pretty sweet. So that was one chapter in, in the book, uh, chapter six, known as Your Mother and Shakespeare Knew. Actually, I didn't even write the rest of the chapter name. It's pretty long. So Your Mother and Shakespeare Knew, if you're checking out the, the book, it's chapter six. Chapter seven talks about is, is called Too Extreme for the Guinness World Record. And here he talks about Matthew Walker, who's the writer of this book, sleep researcher. He talks about microsleeps. Uh, and microsleeps are several seconds where different perceptions and different sensations from outside world are cut off from being perceived by the brain. And this is true when, for example, you're driving. And that's why it's so... It's so detrimental to be driving when you haven't slept enough. If you haven't slept in, let's say, like 20 hours or something, the odds or the chances of you having these microsleeps increases and it continues to increase the longer that you stay up. So you have a few seconds where not even, it's not even necessarily that you're entire, like you, you literally close your eyes and you fall asleep for a few seconds. It's where your brain will shut down particular aspects of itself just for a few seconds. So you can think like your hearing might go out and it's not that you're not sensing it. It's that you're not perceiving it. Your brain is shutting that off. So that is an element of microsleep. So microsleeps are disconnecting from being awake for only a few seconds. So if you sleep a full eight hours, you typically experience no microsleeps whatsoever throughout the day. However, if you stay up an entire day, you experience a catastrophic number of microsleeps. So throughout your day, you will experience many, many. And of course, that's going to continue to ramp up the longer that you're uh, awake. So uh, if you have, and even beyond that, if you have multiple days where you're just you're just consuming only like six hours of sleep, so not not massively sleep deprived, but you're still sleep deprived because you should be getting around eight hours, and of course that's going to change from person to person. You kind of have to experiment around, but the average is around seven eight hours of sleep. Uh, 
consuming six hours of sleep or less, you get a similar effect as if you didn't sleep for one night. So if you have several nights in a row where you consume, you know, you shave off just an hour or two, that massively decreases uh, your your chances of, of avoiding these microsleeps. So, and then if a person continues to be sleep deprived, consuming six hours of sleep or less, uh, they experience a new baseline of alertness, which is substantially lower than a person who consumes a full eight hours of sleep. So if you continuously consume eight hours of sleep, you are at a heightened level of alertness. You are uh, sharper. You're just uh, more intelligent. Not that overall you're more intelligent. It's just that within that moment, you're accessing information more easily. Uh, you're, you're smarter. You, you're, you have emotional maturity. And if you are continuously sleep deprived, while you still have the potential to be more intelligent, which is almost like leveling up like a super saiyan or something, uh, you are decreasing your ability to have intelligent conversations, to be able to access information, all the things that I mentioned earlier. And what's weird is that you don't, you may not even necessarily notice that you're impaired. Uh, that your baseline is impaired from day to day. So, and, and I imagine that there's going to be a threshold for that. You know, if you continuously get four hours of sleep, when you typically get seven or eight hours of sleep, of course you're going to start noticing that. And speaking on emotional maturity, people who are sleep deprived, their current in their brain, their electrical current is much greater. There's greater activity of their amygdala, which is the emotional center of the brain to simplify it. And that's because there's a dampening of the inhibitory neurons that communicate between the frontal cortex, which is where we do a lot of our reasoning, a lot of our thinking, and the amygdala, which would typically suppress the amygdala in highly emotional situations because the amygdala wants to rise up and react emotionally. So the frontal cortex will then inhibit that, uh, leaving the amygdala uninhibited. And then it's able to fire to a greater degree or activate to a greater degree. And therefore you might have emotional outbursts as a result. So the wild expression of these emotions by the amygdala uh, may be one of the driving reasons why people have uh, suicidal thoughts, which is a really crazy thing to think about as well, because I mean, <laughs> imagine you, you just don't get enough sleep and your brain is, is trying to deal with the fact that you haven't gotten enough sleep. So, but unfortunately it, it doesn't have as much of an in inhibition of your amygdala. And I don't want you to think that the amygdala is like this bad part of our brain. We just need to cut it out. No, it, it serves many, many functions, beautiful functions that are necessary for our survival. But in this situation uh, alone, it seems that it can have some pretty devastating uh, effects. That's not to say that if you are sleep deprived, therefore you are immediately suicidal. It's just a factor, an influence that increases the, the potential for suicidal thoughts. Unless you get uh, sufficient sleep, which can then, of course, then decrease the odds of suicidal thoughts. But again, that's 
That's not to say that again, if you if you get enough sleep, that you're suddenly you oh, they can't commit suicide. Not gonna happen. Like it's not that straightforward. Uh, they also or he also mentions that there's a strong link between mental illness and the lack of sleep. And he does mention in the book that uh, he's not sure if it's the lack of sleep that may be exacerbating these mental illnesses or if mental illness itself is causing a lack of sleep. But he seems to think that uh, most likely it's likely both. Uh, But we can certainly address one of them at least uh, to, to a great degree. So he talks about bipolar disorder and how people who swing wildly from a manic to a depressive episode uh, far more than they normally would, a lot of that is strongly associated to the amount of sleep that they received. Again, that communication between the amygdala and the frontal cortex. And not only that, there's also uh, some of the same genes that control mental illness also control sleeping ability. So there is certainly some genetic traits, and there's certainly some strong correlations there as well. So fascinating stuff. I mean, I I was learning a a tremendous amount. Uh, If you're sleep-deprived, your hippocampus is less active. I think that's pretty self-explanatory based off of the memory information I was talking about earlier. And simply doesn't retain that much information. To the point that if you were to consume new information you would not be able to recall it. It's like a roadblock. It just it just wouldn't penetrate. You'd, be, you'd just be repeating it over and over and over again, and you'd just not be able to integ- shove it into that small space of the hippocampus. You need sleep to then reallocate, to, to remove the, that information to the cortex to allow more room, in a simplistic way of understanding it, for that new information to then populate the hippocampus. And that also reduces the neuron's ability to strengthen their connections with one another if you're not getting uh, enough sleep. So speaking more on some of the previous points, trying to use catch-up sleep is useless as those memories, and this would seem pretty self-explanatory, of course, if you are using, if you're learning new information every single day, using catch-up sleep four days later, that's not going to help because you need sleep to break up each session of new information to allow this exchange of information into uh, the, the cortex. You can't because you might be able to integrate some of the information from four days ago. The first bit of information that you came into contact with, or potentially you would forget the first three days of information and you would remember the fourth day of information because then you allowed your, your brain to uh, undergo sleep cycles. But you will not, however, be able to retain all four days worth of information that you've been learning. So it's important to get a full night's sleep to be able to integrate that, that information, then attack the information again, learn more information, then integrate that into the cortex, so on and so forth. Uh, kind of like, I guess you, this is a good example, like a bowl. The bowl is the cortex, the sponge is the hippocampus, and every time you dip it in water, uh, it's the water's filling the, the, the sponge, 
So you have to, the sleep is squeezing the sponge over the bowl so that it enters the bowl and then it can, it can absorb some more water. That's a great way to look at it. If I do say so myself. Uh, also the, he mentions Alzheimer's disease, which I may have spoken about before. Uh, Alzheimer's disease is linked to hev- to, uh, linked heavily to catch up sleep. Uh, with the disruption of non-REM sleep. So if you disrupt non-REM sleep, then uh, you see uh, the beginning of these beta amyloid plaques that begin forming in the prefrontal cortex of the brain uh, where non-REM sleep waves begin. That synchronicity originates at the very front part of the brain. So kind of right where your eyebrows are, really, right between your eyebrows, there's this point, and it starts to spread across the entire brain all the way to the back of the brain. So these beta amyloid plaques start to form. And that's when so that could be a causative factor as, as to why Alzheimer's disease is heavily linked to reduced non-REM sleep. So if you wanted to mitigate Alzheimer's, one of the mechanisms, certainly not going to uh, attribute this solely to sleep, it's just a sleep book, therefore they're going to talk about it, would be to try and increase as much of your non-REM sleep or the quality of your non-REM sleep, which I think over the next you know decade or two decades, I'm sure we'll get more and more information on this topic and therefore we'll be able to uh, hopefully prevent diseases that are closely related to sleep. Now, what's interesting is that beta amyloid plaques, which are essentially just proteins that build up, uh, well, you have some proteins that build up inside the neurons and you have some that build up outside the neurons, uh, do not seem to affect memory sections of the brain, like the hippocampus that I mentioned earlier. So it's likely that the beta amyloid that reduces non-REM sleep uh, originates in the prefrontal cortex, and that stopping of the origination of non-REM sleep is what's probably causing, or at least one of the primary causes of Alzheimer's. So non-REM sleep also allows glial cells, which are uh, cells within our brain that are not neurons, uh, to shrink and allows the cerebrospinal fluid to wash and bathe the neurons, allowing the removal of these beta amyloid plaques. So these are the ones that are outside of the neurons. So if you don't have that process, it's kind of a, a, a cyclical issue, right? You start having these beta amyloid plaques that start building up in that frontal section of the brain and that's likely caused by getting insufficient sleep uh, over your your beginning life cycle and that's why it's unbelievably important to consciously take care of your sleep so that you can avoid this but if it were to occur you have this these beta amyloid plaques that build up in the frontal part of the brain which in then then they themselves inhibit the ability for that non-rem sleep to occur and then even if you're achieving going to sleep for the right amount of time, the quality of your sleep might be decreased, and therefore you're not getting that that engagement of non-REM sleep to the amount that you need, and therefore you're not getting that washing away of the beta amyloid plaques. 
And that's also true for the removal of the tau proteins and other uh, quote-unquote toxic proteins that build up over time. So that's the end of chapter 7. Now let's move on to chapter 8. As I mentioned, I've been I've still been going through all this stuff, so uh, there's there's a lot of information for me to for me to cover. So chapter 8 talks about different diseases like cancer, heart disease, and length of life. And I actually looked at some of these studies that were mentioned. I ended up creating some content for Physionic looking specifically at these studies and sl- decreases in sleep decrease leptin and increase ghrelin so the reduction in sleep every day of the year you know to like something pretty modest like six hours a night instead of eight hours a night you consume 70,000 more calories a year there's an association there and one of the blames, one of the reasons, is decreases in leptin and increases in ghrelin. Leptin is a satiety hormone, which is secreted by our fat cells and our stomach and a few other areas. But those are the two predominant areas, the fat cells being by far the most predominant. And leptin, if it's in high concentrations, you, you get signals to the brain that the hypothalamus, which is not the hippocampus, the hypothalamus is a brain regulatory, it's a highly, highly important brain regulatory uh, center. And leptin allows for, when it's high, for us to get satiety signals so that we don't feel hungry and therefore we won't eat as much. However, ghrelin does the exact opposite. If that is elevated, then uh, you, you have hunger cues. So leptin is decreased with the lack of sleep, and ghrelin is increased. Uh, sleep deprivation increases endocannabinoids, leading to the munchies. And he talks about weed. Uh, so he, talk, he, he ends up relating that to, to weed uh, modulation of those endocannabinoids leading to the to the munchies uh, sleep also improves the microbiome of the gut which uh, at this point that's not too shocking anything that you can think of that's healthy exercise proper nutrition sleep all those things lowered stress are going to affect the microbiome in a positive way uh, sleep deprivation led to equal weight loss as normal sleep but lost more lean mass than fat mass. So there's a preferential impact there, which for anybody who's lifting, who's trying to gain musculature, that would be something to, uh, to keep in mind. Sleep is unbelievably important uh, for that reason alone. But, uh, well, <laughs> sleep is unbelievably important. That's such a general comment for something that I've talked about so many times at this point. So the weight loss can be equal if you're trying to lose weight, but some of that, some more of that will come from lean mass, which is definitely not something that you want. So then he describes another study where people were randomized into two groups. One group consumed only five hours of sleep and the other group consumed 
eight hours of sleep. As a matter of fact, I think this is one of the studies that I ended up looking at. And, oh, never mind. No, it's not. And they had their pictures taken at the same time of day under the same lights, under the same conditions. And then they had people blind to the experiment and they rated the attractiveness of the other people. And it showed that people who consumed the least amount of sleep were rated the least attractive. So by comparison, they were less attractive, uh, which is interesting. It's, it's a bit of a psychological experiment as well, which is which is cool to see. And finally, this was really cool. I, I oh man, I really need to read this paper because I completely forgot about it. Uh, just reading the first like line of my notes here. People were equally injected. This is such a cool experiment. People were equally injected with rhinovirus. If you're not familiar with what rhinovirus is, that is the common cold. They were given the common cold. Can you imagine signing up for this? Sure, no problem. Give me a cold. Make me sick. Not an issue whatsoever. So these people were injected with rhinovirus. And then the researchers had them stay in the lab for one week. So this highly, highly controlled study as they measured different outcomes to determine if these individuals got the common cold. And what I'm talking about when they say they measure different outcomes, they literally like measure their snot. I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Their sleep, their snot, what they, I mean, all kinds of different measures. It's a really cool experiment. If I haven't mentioned that already. Uh, and so yeah, so they, they measured these different outcomes to determine if these individuals got the common cold. So they were able to measure if these individuals got sick or not, which is obviously important if you want to measure how sickness affects them. Then they separated them out based off of the amount of sleep per night and found a linear increase in the relationship. So this is an association between the lack of sleep and increased risk of having the infection take hold. So let me explain that a bit. If you are presented with a pathogen, but you are a, at peak health, it is possible for that pathogen to enter your body and for it not to affect you in terms of you're not going to get symptoms because your body will destroy it or get rid of it or it'll get caught in some of your d different defense systems before it actually has the ability to uh, affect you. So people who don't get sick very often, that is likely one of the major mechanisms, one of the major reasons why, because they're still being exposed to different pathogens. And of course, they may have just better hygiene and therefore uh, they, they don't get exposed to these pathogens. But these individuals were specifically exposed to the pathogens the exact same way. And then you're able to modulate and be able to tell which people ended up actually having developing symptoms over that week. So people who received five hours of sleep had a 50% infection rate, and the people who consumed seven hours or more of sleep had an 18% infection rate. That's a huge difference. Of course, that's an association, but that is too, too freaking cool. All right. I think I'm going to leave it here, and until next time I get to sit down and discuss some of these things, I have a few more chapters on why we sleep, and then I'm going to shift over to the physics. So, with that said, thanks for tuning in, and I will catch you, well, for you, it's going to be 
a moment. See ya. I have returned. Although for you, as I mentioned in the last segment, that it would be a moment for me. It's been about three weeks. <laughs> so it's been a while since I've sat down and started recording some of the things that I've learned. But I have learned many, many things of which I will be telling you. So let's continue with why we sleep. So now we're moving into chapter nine. Chapter nine talks about REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, if you forgot from previous episodes. So during non-REM sleep, which is broken up into four stages, non-REM sleep being deep sleep, synonymous with deep sleep, there's four different stages of deep sleep. Well, during non-REM sleep, metabolism typically slows down slightly. Uh, I can't really explain why, but apparently that seems to be the case. Uh, Interestingly, however, on the opposite end, during REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep, when we dream and when we have that really hectic activity that's extremely similar to when we're awake, that style of sleep that leads to increases in metabolism. They're slightly different across different regions of the brain. So I imagine as different areas of the brain are being activated to greater and greater degrees or lesser and lesser degrees throughout the night, throughout these different 90-minute sleep cycles, that you start to experience increases in the metabolism of those specific regions. And Matthew Walker, Dr. Matthew Walker, goes even further into this and describes that during REM sleep, people show a 30% increase in activity of the amygdala, which is the emotional center of the brain. And conversely, other areas of the brain, more specifically the prefrontal cortex, are substantially decreased in their activity. So what that tells or what that's associated with or the assumption there is that during REM sleep that while you see these ramp ups of activity in the in these I guess you could call them more primal aspects of our brain that are responsible for emotions and kind of uninhibited thoughts those tend to increase while the frontal cortex which is supposedly the last part of our brain that has that has developed over time evolutionarily speaking uh, that part is where we reason and we have logic and intelligence and things of that nature and that typically has its hands all over the other areas of the brain trying to control them and make sure that everything is uh, functioning at peak capacity and being controlled effectively so that you're not having, for example, extremely angry outbursts or, you know, whatever it might be, or just falling apart emotionally uh, in, in inappropriate, societally imposed inappropriate situations. So something to consider there as well. So that section of the brain seems to decrease. So one of the analogies that he says, and I think I've heard other psychologists speak to, is that you're essentially letting the prison, the prisoners run the prison, 
while the prison guards are asleep. So the kind of rambunctious nature of REM sleep and and dreaming, essentially that's what we're talking about. So these dreams um, are leading to higher activity or maybe higher activity is leading to the dreams. Who knows? Chicken and the egg. But regardless, there is an increase in the activity of those kind of more primal areas as opposed to the more developed areas or the more controlled areas of the brain. So it allows us, in a way, to be kind of like kids again without us realizing it. It's kind of a cool concept. So that's all I had for chapter 9. So then I moved into chapter 10, which talks more on, on this general idea. But here he talks about what dreams really are. And it's possible that dreams are just a phenomenon that is a byproduct of REM sleep. So we go through REM sleep and we have this hectic activity in our brain, but the dreams themselves are not something that REM sleep is designed to produce. They're, the dreams may not mean anything. They may just be a byproduct of the fact that our brain has to undergo a REM sleep where it's uh, creating these new neural connections and making sure that we're remembering particular aspects of of our days. So it's a little bit like you can think of like a light bulb that illuminates a room. Um, but the byproduct of the light bulb illuminating the room is heat. Heat and light are uh, very closely related. And dreams may be equivalent to heat of the light bulb. Oh, this was really cool. He's t- talking about during REM sleep, it's the only time that the brain is devoid of norepinephrine, so a stimulatory uh, neurotransmitter, a chemical that communicates between neurons, uh, not just in the brain, but neurotransmitters are all over the body anytime they're communicating between neurons. And they can actually communicate with uh, other cells as well, not just neurons. So this lack of epinephrine uh, is a strong signal that the brain is re-administering or reprogramming the emotions associated with memories of the day. So if you go through, and I thought this was such a cool concept that, and I'll touch on a little more in depth in just a second, but essentially that if you, when you go to sleep, your brain, I don't want to say sucks out, but I mean, sort of, there's a reuptake mechanism that allows neurons to take up neurotransmitters, uh, reuptakes all the those particular excitatory neurotransmitters that were highly active and highly related to a particular emotional event let's say i don't know you you see you see a a dog get shot by someone and that's a traumatic event because you love dogs and because of that during that moment you had this burst of norepinephrine, highly excitable, high anxiety situation. And what your brain does in the, in the evening, in the night, is it allows you to relive that experience, but devoid of the nor- norepinephrine, therefore starting to dissociate the trauma, the emotional trauma that was associated with the actual event, 
from from how you're going to end up remembering it. So you'll still remember kind of an intellectual level that this was traumatic, but you may not remember uh, all of the strong emotional feelings that will go along with that. And it continues to reprogram it. So, you know, if you think about something more and more over time, eventually it kind of loses its, its luster in terms, it loses its uh, emotional impact. Now, of course, that's not entirely always the case. Uh, for some people, they have extreme difficulty, and those t- types of people tend to have greater levels of anxiety. And um, he goes into more detail with that. He talks about people who suffer from like PTSD. They can have chronically elevated levels of norepinephrine. So uh, even if the brain is trying to clear out norepinephrine when they go to sleep, they may not be able to clear out all of it or they can't clear any of it out, and that may be one of the reasons why they have PTSD. So lowering, artificially lowering norepinephrine could be a treatment for uh, PTSD to be able to confront whatever caused that PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, if you're not familiar with what PTSD is, uh, where you experience a highly traumatic event and then it imprints itself onto the brain where you have you you have you have extreme difficulty confronting that memory again or something that might resemble that memory and the classic example is like veterans uh, if they've been around gunfire and they've seen people die and things of that nature um, if they hear um, a car backfire that may immediately bring them back to that moment and they will experience extreme anxiety panic attacks things of that nature so the idea being that if we can then devoid to, to remove that norepinephrine uh, specifically, then there may be a way for the brain to calm those memories down over time and start chipping away at kind of normalizing them and making them less severe in terms of their emotional impact, which I thought was, I mean, I think that's, that's a really, really cool concept. Now, there's another thing he talks about napping, specifically napping during REM sleep. Uh, curi- he, was, he mentioned that people were, or researchers were curious if people are more creative during that time wherein they're napping and then they get woken up during REM sleep, which is, again, where you have that inhibition of that controlled side of your brain, that frontal cortex. And interestingly, they found that people who napped and were woken up in the middle of like REM sleep, which is easy to track because uh, you can have different probes on the, on the skull, which will read electrical activity. And of course, again, it's just going to be really hectic. It's going to be near wake state. So I guess, I guess it's what, like beta waves or something like that. I believe it's beta waves. Uh, that you can track. And the moment these people would wake up, the researchers would present them with scrambled words. Always, I think, like four letters or something like that. Something relatively easy, but uh, something that, you know, was scrambled so that they had to actually think about it. And these individuals were able to 
creatively or more quickly figure out what the words were. And they were a lot more creative in their process of doing so uh, than individuals who did not nap. And or, I believe, uh, also individuals that were woken up during non-REM sleep. So again, non-rapid eye movement sleep. So that non-dream state. So again, it kind of speaks to, you know, that particular area of the brain. There's, I mean, these are all associations, but um, it does speak to, to that area of the brain being a controller and making sure that things go by a particular process. I'm talking about the frontal cortex. So if the frontal cortex is inhibited and then you kind of surprise the brain into being awake, that area of the brain might not be ready or, you know, without anthropomorphizing things too much, but uh, might not be ready to handle the task at hand while the other areas of the brain that were that are uninhibited, that are uh, more free, more childlike, more emotional, more uh, spontaneous, those areas of the brain will have, have free reign and don't necessarily have this structure in place that they normally would. So if, you know, if you ask somebody at 2 PM during the day, they've been awake, uh, they've got a structure for how they go about thinking things. And there's a, a serious benefit to that, no doubt about it. But if you want to really experience some of the creativity, uh, it, it seems that, you know, waking yourself up during REM sleep is rather potent. And this is, this bears out with many, many anecdotal stories. Uh, he mentioned a few, and I've actually run across a few myself, uh, not of me, but of, of artists. So like, uh, Taylor Swift, I'm not, admittedly, I'm not a fan of her music, but, um, she apparently has mentioned that she sleeps with a guitar next to her and some, and a recorder. And one of her songs, many of her songs, she's come to that lyric or that particular pattern of music. When she woke up, she just spontaneously woke up from a dream and just had this idea. So ended up recording it real quick, like a real rough draft of what it is. And the same is true of uh, the Rolling Stones. So I believe they, they had a similar kind of process. They would have a the guitarist would have his guitar next, next, next to him. And he would just string along a little bit, you know, if he woke up in the middle of the night. So he mentions that, but he also mentions, um, Oh man, I don't remember exactly who it was. I didn't write it down in my notes, but it was, I think like Edison or something along, someone along those lines that would, uh, would be writing or working on something. And then he would, he would place his arm on the table or on the chair rest so that it would, it would be just barely in place. So he could, he could rest his head on his arm. And then he would put a few, uh, balls like pebbles, not pebbles, but, uh, marbles into his hand. So as he was falling asleep, because the first stage you can sort of enter is that like that REM sleep as he would start to fall asleep, his elbow would, would fall off and he would drop the, the marbles and the marbles would fall onto the saucer that he had specifically placed, uh, beneath 
him uh, in a prime location so that uh, it would create a lot of sound and he would wake up. And that apparently helped him be a lot more creative in his thought processes when it came to um, figuring out different issues that he was trying to solve, different inventions and whatnot. So, you know, again, just like really, really creative people doing some, some pretty, some extremely creative things uh, just to get themselves to a creative mindset. <clears throat> okay, and then finally, chapter 12. That was all from chapter 11. So chapter 12, uh, talking more on non-REM sleep. And he's talking about sleepwalking. So apparently there are these very specific spikes in electrical activity that can occur that would normally jump someone out of sleep and enter them into being awake. But for people who sleepwalk, they can have particular areas of their brain that sort of wake up, but other areas of the brain are still asleep. So there's a disjunct between or dyssynchrony between those waking areas, which should not be awake and the sleeping areas, or, you know, maybe the sleeping areas should wake up and uh, vice versa. But the point being that you have particular areas of the brain that have this sudden spike in electrical activity, which would then cause them to uh, be awake, or at least near awake, have these these readings that seem like they're awake. And if you do tests on these individuals, they do seem like they're awake, and that's why they can talk, and that's why they can do certain things, why why they can drive, and things of that nature. So, but I mean, of course, it's incredibly dangerous because you don't really know what areas of the brain. Are going to be active <laughs> so it's it, it can be dangerous apparently it's a tiny tiny minority of in, of individuals that do sleepwalk uh, can put themselves in danger or be a, a detriment to, to others there was apparently a famous case where a man uh, did sleepwalk and he slept walks uh, so much he ended up getting his car driving X amount of distance, like 20 minutes or something, and got to his step mother's or his mother-in-law's house, I think, mother-in-law's house, and ended up murdering her and tried to kill his father-in-law and choked him unconscious, but didn't, didn't succeed in killing him. And then drove himself to the police station and there he turned himself in saying, uh, I think I've killed someone and he didn't remember any of what he had done. And it turned out that they had enough evidence that they showed that, yeah, he, he was indeed asleep when he did both of those activities and they weren't necessarily as far as I know, they weren't, it's not like he had a bad relationship with them or anything like that. Uh, it's just his, his brain just went completely uninhibited. I mean, again, you're going back to this analogy of the prisoners are let loose and the prisoners are typically let loose and in, and it's fine. Like it's just, it's your dream state. You're paralyzed. I mean, I've mentioned this before in previous episodes that your, your brain paralyzes you for a reason. <laughs> uh, and presumably the reason is because you shouldn't be walking around. 
but for particular individuals, again, if you have this spike in electrical activity, it could seem like that particular part of the brain is not asleep, and therefore you may become unparalyzed, and then you can go around and do things. And then finally, he talks a little bit about insomniacs. And in some, just a few fun facts, insomniacs tend to have a higher body temperature at night. So uh, to, for us to fall asleep, we tend to have, we have to decrease our body temperature a few degrees. And it seems like that insomniacs have a tendency to have a higher body temperature. So that makes it more difficult for them to go to sleep. They also tend to have more sympathetic drive in terms of their hormones and their electrical activity and nervous system activity. So sympathetic is not a good thing in this situation. It's more excitation. It's more think of like uh, trying to compete in an athletic event. That would be more of sympathetic drive. The opposite being more calming, which is the parasympathetic drive. And uh, that leads to higher levels of cortisol and epinephrine. Uh, so these individuals don't have a down regulation of those particular hormones. Not only that, they're, they don't have as much, if any, down regulation of their thalamus or their amygdala uh, and their hippocampus. So their brain is still accessing memory, emo so memory through the hippocampus, emotions I've already talked about through the amygdala, and are still intaking sensory inputs from the thalamus specifically. So... Again, something else I've mentioned in previous episodes is that you, your thalamus is kind of a filter. It plays, it, it runs as a filter. So it just uh, accepts or rejects particular sensory input. So all the sensory input, you're going to sense everything. So if you're, you know, you're lightly poked or something, you might not wake up because your thalamus is receiving that signal and then stopping it before it can propagate to the higher areas of the brain, which would then react to it and then wake you up. Um, but on the other hand, if you sense an extreme signal, then that breaks through that breach, that filter of the thalamus, and it does reach the, the higher area. So you would want that thalamus to be uh, active in regard to control the signals, but uh, you don't want it to just allow everything through, which apparently for insomniacs it, it has a tendency to do. And of course, uh, with the amygdala and the hippocampus, I mean, if you're constantly accessing memories, then how can you calm your mind to be able to fall asleep if you're continuously recalling different things that are that are running through your life or throughout your day or, you know, relationships or, you know, a series of different things. All right, so that's what I've got for why we sleep until next time. Uh, now I'm going to switch over to a little bit of physics from Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. So let's jump into that. All right, let's talk some astrophysics Please bear with me if I have moments of extreme silence as I'm trying to work through some sort of problem that I'm seeing. Um, last time we talked about this, I 
I believe I left off based off of my notes off of Bell Telephone Laboratory testing the reception of radio waves and they ended up discovering that there's always some level of background noise when they were using their telescopes or their detectors and that tiny level of background noise uh, turned out based off of further elucidation by a Princeton group turned out to be evidence of the expanding universe because it happened in all directions. So that's where we left off. Now, chapter eight talks about the Big Bang, black holes, and the evolution of the universe. You know, small topics. So the current theories of cosmology not to be confused with cosmetology, cosmology is that space-time, which is the fourth dimension, remember that from previous episodes, is flat and smooth, so there are no ripples in it. But those theories tend to break down at the Big Bang theory, at the Big Bang itself, because apparently at the point of the Big Bang, the, the infin, infinitesimally small moment before the Big Bang, all the mass in the world, I'm not talking about Earth, I'm talking about in the world, in the universe, was packed into a single point. And this creates a space-time curvature, so it's no longer flat and smooth, but it's a curvature that is unending. So it's all packed into this one, I guess it's a ball. I would imagine it's a ball, just a, in, an ending curvature that just curves in on itself, making the perfect ball. I don't know, perfect sphere. So as a result, the Big Bang is the beginning of the universe, although existence could have started before the Big Bang. Now, this is, a, this is a concept I've never fully understood in physics that, as in I've understood it, but it, it, it seems like physicists just got lazy or maybe they didn't get lazy, but they were like, well, this is even too hard for us, so we're just not even going to bother. Or they genuinely feel like there's no way to, to know the, the answer to this. But physics only goes back to the Big Bang. It doesn't go before the Big Bang. So physics assumes that time started at the Big Bang. So they could very well be wrong about that. Now, while everything after the Big Bang, they've been able to predict with pretty insane accuracy. I mean, a lot of the physical laws that we have, Newtonian or uh, as we'll talk about later quantum all the laws fit i mean they work they give a framework based off of what we have off of how we experience the world but interestingly physics as a field doesn't just assumes that there was no time before the beginning of time and the beginning of time was the big bang which could 
easily be disputed by uh, really anyone because it's at that point that physicists don't have any more information. They have no more theories to go off of. So it's just as as nebulous an idea for them as it is for a person who washes windshields. Like it, it's, we're all on the same page in terms of anything that happens before the Big Bang. So I do find it a little bit naive, uh, to be honest, for for physicists to, for if a physicist were to put it this way, that there was nothing before the Big Bang. That seems naive to me. That seems like you might be right. I'm not saying that they're wrong, but I'm also not, you just can't be that certain. You can't be as certain about everything after the Big Bang, or you can't be as certain about the things before the Big Bang as you can be about the things after the Big Bang, because we have only existed in the after the Big Bang and we have no preconceived ideas of what was before the Big Bang and no proof of anything before the Big Bang. So it's arrogant and dismissive and a little ridiculous to say with any level of certainty or approaching certainty that we understand that nothing existed before the Big Bang because we literally do not know. And that's where it's up to everyone. Anyways, so yeah, physics doesn't worry about itself with anything before the Big Bang because the belief is that nothing existed before the Big Bang, or at least by some physics physicists. So the assumption is that the Big Bang is the beginning of time. Another aspect covered is that temperature, I've got a few like loose notes here and there. I, I had to read some of these chapters like five times because uh, just, just trying to really make sense of it. Sometimes I would read it like two or three times and be like, all right, I think I got like 60% of that. And then I got to go back for another 15% and then go back for another 15%, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So temperature is a measure of the speed of particles, also known as energy. So that's something interesting that I wanted to impart. This particular section threw me for a loop for a little while, but I think I understand it better now. Protons and neutrons, which are particles, do have mass, and so do their antiparticles, which I forgot what their antiparticles are. They're like, instead of a proton, it's like a negatron or something. It's not a negatron, but... It's something the the like a negative version of the proton. Uh, so, and there's an exact same amount of the antiparticles as there are of the particles, and if they run into each other, they annihilate one another. So, photons, however, not to be confused with protons. Protons and photons are different. Protons end up making part of the nucleus of an atom. A photon, however, is uh, energy. It is light. So we've talked about different wavelengths. That is created by photons because photons are a particle and a wave at the same time. So photons, on the other hand, unlike protons, 
So photons do not have mass, but protons do and neutrons do as well, creating that nucleus. So I imagine with the electrons circling around the nucleus, the atom, you know, I'm sure you've seen it before, the the nucleus in the middle made up of the neutron proton, and then you've got these different orbitals of electrons that make up the shells. You can have like a half shell or uh, a partial shell that's filled with electrons and like a full shell that's made up of electrons, and it goes from inside out from what I remember in chemistry. So photons, however, can collide and can create if they have enough energy, an antiparticle and a particle with mass. So if you've got two photons and they're moving extremely quickly and they have enough energy, they hit each other head on and then out of that comes mass. So that's where we get this cross, as my understanding is, that's where we get this cross of energy to mass. That's such a cool concept. I mean, that is that is one of the linchpins of existence, and not just like biological existence. That's that's like anything, anything. That is one of the most crucial aspects of understanding the world. Understanding this crossover from from no mass to mass, or going from mass to no mass. That is unbelievably important. So photons can collide and create an antiparticle and particle, which will split into different directions, uh, like an electron and a positron. That was the other one I was looking for. So an electron and a positron. So electron is negative in its charge and positrons are positive in their charge. So they're opposite from one another. And with enough energy in the colliding photons, the electron can have mass from that excess energy. Uh, I I wrote a note here, how? And then I answered it, I have no idea. (laughs) Clearly I have many questions that still need to be answered. So electrons that are annihilated by positrons, because again, they're the particle and antiparticle, form photons. So you have this nice little reciprocity that occurs, this nice little cycle of life, like uh, something dying and then giving birth to something else. So again, if the photons nail each other, hit each other, then they can produce mass. They can create these two particles that have mass. And when the two particles with mass hit each other, they annihilate each other, creating photons. So if they're really like destroying each other, that's, that's somewhat of a debate. I mean, you would think because technically, if that's the case, then you could have uh, many, many more photons with the potential for mass. But I guess the stipulation there is if those photons have sufficient energy to create mass, which they may not. So, uh, yeah, so going back to this, to the Bell Laboratories that I briefly alluded back to, uh, we can still measure, and uh, Bell did, with the aforementioned background noises, the energy from the Big Bang, even today, because those photons are 
diminished in energy. So they've kind of fallen through those wavelengths until they've landed at a lower energy level. So we pick that up by just looking at radio waves, which is again what I mentioned earlier, that background in the universe, whichever direction you end up pointing it. So the Big Bang was so hot that protons and neutrons couldn't even form uh, nuclei. They couldn't even do the dance to be to become uh, atomic nuclei. But eventually, the 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 universe cooled enough so f- the first atoms could be created, which were heavy hydro- hydrogen. Which mm, I want to say is. So hydrogen has one electron, from what I remember. Don't quote me on that, please. (laughs) Hydrogen has one electron, so heavy hydrogen may not have any electrons. So it was just the nuclei that created the first atom, which was heavy hydrogen. So if you look on the, um, the periodic table, that's where you would find hydrogen, but you may not find heavy hydrogen because... I guess the heaviness of the hydrogen is dependent on the number of electrons that it has. And after it expanded a while, so talking about the Big Bang, it picked up an electron in its orbit of the nucleus, again, the combination of the neutron and proton, and formed a regular, I wrote it right here, didn't even realize it, a regular periodic table hydrogen. Look at that. Look at me learning things. That's pretty, that's pretty damn cool. That is pretty damn cool. I gotta admit it. Gotta admit it. So, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna beat myself up over this. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna cover chapter nine later on. But, let me continue finishing up with chapter eight. So, stars emit heat and light by undergoing reactions of converting hydrogen, what we just talked about, into helium. This reaction emits heat and light. Once a star runs out of hydrogen, so it can no longer create helium, it begins to cool as helium is converted to heavier elements like carbon and oxygen. And wow, could you imagine a world with carbon and oxygen? Well, you can, because almost everything that you're touching is made out of carbon. Uh, some some construction of carbon. And obviously, you know, oxygen is unbelievably important. Well, I mean, all the elements are, but of these four, uh, it's it's just kind of comical to, to think that they've created heavier elements like carbon and oxygen afterwards, after the, the light, the energy dies out of a star. So ultimately, this leads to the star to collapse in on itself into a very dense state known as a black hole. If the gravity becomes the dominant force, then it pulls itself into itself, and objects require a minimum velocity to escape the gravitational pull. So, he talks about this a little bit, where you need a 
a, a minimum velocity. Like you have to be moving at a particular speed to be able to escape. However, you may have heard that light cannot escape a black hole. Now, the reason for that is because, again, based off of my limited understanding, that light is not moving quickly enough. It does not reach the minimum velocity threshold. How absolutely absurd is that? 186,000 miles per second is not fast enough to escape a black hole. And therefore, everything, because everything is slower than light, as far as I'm aware, that means that everything will get sucked into a black hole if it enters its gravitational pull. However, in these situations, the gravity is so powerful that even the speed of light is below the minute. Wow, I am way ahead of myself. Like, I'm not even reading my notes and I'm explaining things. Look at that. Man, I really am learning things. It's pretty unbelievable. And light is absorbed within the black hole. When massive stars collapse into a black hole, they sometimes emit a mass light known as a supernova. This supernova releases so much light that it could leave the planets around it intact and yet irradiate every living creature on those planets. This is actually one of the theories as to why certain animals died many millions of years ago. I believe they're talking about the dinosaurs. So that's apparently one of the theories. Although, from what I remember, uh, there doesn't seem to be a supernova anywhere near us. So apparently that is not the case, at least not now. Supernovas are the main reason why scientists do not believe that intelligent life can exist in areas with too many stars. And that makes a lot of sense because eventually those stars will collapse and will end up destroying everything around them, even if the planet, again, is remains intact uh, just because of sheer radiation. But that, of course, is assuming that you're using a biological system that uses things like DNA, which, who knows, maybe there are things that evolve in different ways. Maybe they don't even evolve, uh, but that's, that's a discussion for another time. So when supernovas explode, they release heavier elements out. Remember the heavier elements, carbon, oxygen, which end up being the building blocks of new stars and planets. So some of the elements that we have on earth are from a supernova several billions of years ago. How freaking cool is that? Man, Earth is made up from exploding stars. That's really, really cool. Anyway, on that note, I think that's where I'm going to end this particular episode, not just this segment, but this episode of The Color of Curiosity. I do have chapter 9, which is going to be talking about quantum gravity. You're going to be able to hear me struggle through that in, ne in the next episode. <laughs> Please forgive me. I am so bad at this, but uh, I am learning. I am learning, which I am incredibly grateful and extremely happy about. So hopefully you found this 
really interesting like I did. And I will catch you in the next episode. Have a good one. Bye.